Wonderful. Appreciate your enthusiasm as you sing praises this morning. Uh, you'll have the notes there in version. Uh, let me start with just a little personal experience that's still very fresh in my mind. I remember the first time my director called me in to give me that coveted New York promotion. It's fresh in my mind. I remember being called to his office. I remember sitting across the desk. I remember as he laid out the package. It included an apartment in Manhattan, an expense account, a massive pay increase to offset the cost of living in New York City, the admiration of my peers. He was really laying it out there for me. And I'll never forget the look on his face when I said, wow, that is awesome. Tom, I need to take a day and pray about it. I'll never forget the way his face changed in that moment. Tom, I need to take a day and pray about that. And his countenance changed completely. He's a great guy, super nice guy to work for. But he had a look of confusion. His face indicated a lack of comprehension as to why I had not burst from his office skipping and shouting grabbing cardboard boxes, running down there to pack up my, my, my office and start, you know, uh, getting ready for the big move to, to, to New York City. And it was in that experience that I really began to understand. I was in my early 20s. It was in that experience that I began to understand about me that I was not like other men. A massive transformation was happening in my life. It was affecting my thinking. It was affecting my goals. It was affecting how I saw my life. And it was affecting really what my mission in life really was. And that transformation led me to an understanding that calling Jesus Lord had implications. Calling Jesus our Lord to me in that moment was being translated that if my life is His, then His mission is mine. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, you're a pastor. It's not about that. I wasn't a pastor. I was a business person just like you had a vocation and a career just like everyone else in this room. But I was coming to understand that my life was being transformed as a young adult to be a real follower of Christ. Now, not because my parents were followers of Christ, but now as a 20-something, I'm following Christ because, wow, I'm following Christ. I believe. I believe for myself. I, I, I want to follow, pursue God for myself, I'm calling him Lord. And if I call him Lord, my life is his. But if my life is his, then his mission has to become mine. Otherwise, we cannot use the word Lord when we refer to Jesus. You just need to say, dear Jesus that I know, but don't intend fully yet to pursue and follow. Dear Jesus that saved me, but, but 
I'm not sure I'm ready to pursue you with my whole life. Something was shifting in me. And I was understanding now as a young adult, wow, calling him Lord means that I'm not maybe like other people. And I was becoming a coming to a place in my life where, I guess you just call it, where you begin to really surrender whatever your goals and ambitions are to Christ. That meant one path for me. It means another path, maybe for the uh, unique path for you in the room. But my transformation brought me to commit my life to Christ regardless of what he asked me to do. Now, I want to be very clear. Following Christ, being sold out to Christ, calling him Lord, all these things I'm describing does not mean vocational ministry. Does not mean you becoming a pastor or a missionary. And I'm very nervous when I talk to Christians about being a a real follower of Christ. That people are nervous thinking, well if I really just say God my life is yours and I call you Lord and I'll do whatever you want. He's going to ask me to become a pastor. Let me be very clear with you. If you're not already wrestling with being a pastor, he's not going to call you to be one. You can let that go. If you're fearful, man, if I surrender to him completely, he's going to send me to Botswana to be a missionary. No, if, if that's not already a calling on your life, and you would know, you would already know, then, then don't fear that. Following Christ completely doesn't mean vocational mean, ministry. It means living your life may be different than other people live their lives because you're completely on mission for following Jesus Christ. And I want to really challenge you this morning, do not be fearful of the implications of following Christ completely in your life because through that process of total commitment to Christ, this commitment brings into our life richness. Commitment brings into our life fullness. Commitment brings into our life blessings the blessings that God offers us in this life they come through committed relationships through commitments now I've been been studying a little bit in the book of Acts it's in the book of Acts that we learn a lot about uh, the churches then that begin to first church shows up in Jerusalem and and it's the story of the the acts of the apostles what the apostles did after Jesus went back to heaven they're all in Jerusalem at first and Jerusalem being the first church, but, but here's, what, here's what I need to say to you. Although it was the first church, Jerusalem was not destined to be the prominent church. It would not go out down in history as the preeminent church. The church at Jerusalem was a large church. We know that thousands were added to the church in the opening chapters of the book of Acts. It was a large church. But the church at Jerusalem was not the most effective church mentioned in the book of Acts. So you can be large and not really making much of a genuine impact upon this world. The church at Jerusalem represented orthodoxy. I think everybody knows what that word means. But that conservative Christian set of standards. There was no other church. It was orthodoxy. There is nothing but Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem represented orthodoxy, but in the coming days it was a progressive church, not an orthodox church. It was a progressive church that was destined to rock the world and leave its mark on this world. The Jerusalem church was famous as the mother church from which the other churches came, but it was not famous for being a church on mission, which was why persecution ultimately came into Jerusalem. 
So way back there in the first century, this is the book of Acts, Jesus has ascended, the apostles are doing their ministry. Way back in the first century, there was a church that really wanted to do something great for God. And we are introduced to that church in Acts chapter number 13. It's the church at Antioch, Syria. When you find your maps later today, you can just find Jerusalem and just go straight up north, up the coast through Lebanon and up to just below modern-day Turkey, and you'll see the little city of Antioch near the sea. In their day, in the first century, the Middle East was the seat of Christianity. Now, you want to talk about history's changed in 2,000 years. Christianity's been nearly annihilated through genocide from the Middle East. Christian, listen to what I'm saying. Christians have been slaughtered by the thousands and thousands and thousands in your lifetime by radical Islam, and Christianity has nearly been eradicated in your generation from the Middle East. Listen, 2,000 years ago in the first century, the Middle East was the heart of Christianity. It was the birthplace of Christianity. It was Christianity in the first century. Uh, Uh, In the first century, no substantial numbers of Christians existed, just one or two, but no substantial numbers of Christians existed outside of the Middle East. In their day, in the book of Acts, first century, in their day, the pagan world was Europe to the West. Those in the Middle East who were Christians are looking westward to Greece and Italy, and Spain, and Britannia, and Germania, and France of the Gaul, they're looking that way, and they're saying, this is the pagan world to which the gospel needs to go. Now, while they respected the Jerusalem Christians, everyone did. They had high respect for those pioneers, for the first group, for the first batch of Jesus. Everyone respected the church of Jerusalem and those Christians because they suffered a lot. I mean, they really suffered a lot, many of them at the very hands of Saul of Tarsus, who was murdering them, who later became the Apostle Paul. But it was the Antioch church who were the real pioneers who took the gospel from the Middle East and pushed it westward into the continent of Europe. The Antioch church, as you discover in Acts chapter 13, had a team of leaders, much the way we've organized our church here at Cornerstone, had a team of leaders, called an elder team, called a pastoral team, but they had a team of leaders, and that team taught the church, and their names are all listed in the Bible, and I've got a whole other history lesson on them for another, another day. But the Antioch church assembled the church, the leaders began to confer, and they decided to separate two of those leaders out <clears throat> from the team and send them to make disciples. So they laid hands on Paul and Barnabas, we read this, And they said, you two go and make disciples beyond our local community here in the Middle East. We want you to go far away from these shores, and we want you to go to Europe and make disciples. And the Antioch church left a disciple-making legacy for the churches of Europe. The Antioch church was very intentional about the methodology, the method they used for evangelizing Europe, for making disciples in Europe. They used Jesus' model, relational (coughs) discipleship. 
So when you read the book of Acts, you'll find Paul and Barnabas going into a city and building friendships with pagans, finding disciples where they exist and, and, and training them how to multiply and teaching them the things of God. And you'll see relationships and friendships and multiplication beginning to happen. And then churches being established in Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi and Rome. And the churches start popping up in the next 10, 20, 30 years in this European pagan uh, continent. Now let's talk about legacy for a minute. Legacy is a, a word we don't use a lot. It's a historic word. It means that uh, you give the next generation something. Legacy is something transmitted or something received from an ancestor of the past. It was the Antioch church that gave a legacy of disciple making to Europe. Europe was pagan. They got Christianity from Antioch, Syria, from one particular church and a set of disciple makers. Something transmitted from an ancestor to another generation. Here's my question I want you to be thinking about as I go and talk about the pilgrims in a moment. I want you to think about this question for you. What legacy will you leave the coming generation? What will you pass to the next generation? When the next generation looks to you and they say, okay, here's what my parents left me. They left me the legacy of being awesome shoppers. My parents left me the legacy of being sports fanatics. Dad was the biggest sports fan ever. Now I want you to wrestle for a moment. When your children and your grandchildren look to you, and listen, it's not that far away. When they look back to you, they're going to say, here's what Michael and Tanya left me. These are my parents. These are my grandparents. This is what they left us. This is the legacy of my family will it be generosity and love and disciple making and a pursuit for Christ and a heart for Christ and, and compassion to adopt children and pour your life into people what, what will it be I, I'm just curious and it's something you really should think about how will you be known by your ancestors how will you be known uh, by your family tree are you making a difference? Are you, are, you, are, you, are you influencing in some way? To move the story along, I don't want you to get bored this morning because I've got a good history lesson for you. Let me tell you that in Europe, once the legacy of disciple-making passed from Antioch, Syria, this first century, for the next 1,500 years in Europe, disciples were constantly being made. 1,500 years, churches and disciples and Christians are popping up and pioneering and pioneering and pioneering. And those churches in 1,500 years went through all kinds of reformations, all kinds. You in your lifetime have gone through maybe some little baby reformations where you put the hymnal down and you got a little more modern music and you got rid of the pipe organ and you got a guitar and... And you, you loosened the tie and you, and, and you came in casual. Those really are our reformations. They're, they're just little uh, housekeeping, stylistic reformations. We haven't had major doctrinal 
uh, reformations. We're beginning to have major denominational reformations where denominations take certain positions that don't apply to all of us and we're really rethinking denominational boundaries probably in our generation more, more than anything. But for 1,500 years, as they're coming out of idolatry and into Christianity and then reproducing that Christianity for 1,500 years in Europe, those churches went through massive reformations, which now fast-forwards the story to another historic church. We come now in history to another church that also wanted to advance the kingdom of God. They wanted to do something big and meaningful and, and, and historic for God in their generation. This was a church in England. And in England, their culture, now in 1500 and 1600, was in decline. And so as we come into the 1600s, English culture is declining. This group of Christians are not Anglican, which is the state church of England. So they're being persecuted, even though they're in England, which we think of, you might think of as being free. They weren't free. And they were being persecuted for their beliefs in England. So in 1608, the church met together. And the church made some decisions after strategizing and talking and praying the church agreed that the entire congregation would leave England, their native soil, and the church would move across the channel back to the mainland of Europe, and they would seek out a a fresh start for the church in Holland, in a new country. Now, I would just like to say so many things, but I will not have time this morning. But as you think about what it means to be a follower of Christ and a member of this church, I want you to think about the type of commitments that historically people made. Can you imagine us having a church business meeting and saying, okay, we are all moving uh, to San Francisco to plant a disciple-making church to be missionary pioneers, okay? And we debate it for a while, and we debate it for a while, and we debate it for a while, and finally we call for the vote, and and, and three-fourths of the church says, let's do it, and a fourth says, let's don't do it, but the entire church agrees to abide by the decision of the body, And so tomorrow we go all call realtors. If you're a realtor, you're about to make a killing. And everybody puts their house up for sale. And we start thinking about how in the world we're all going to get to to California. Does that make sense? And the entire church uprooted itself and moved back to the mainland of Europe from England into Holland. And the entire church started over in Holland. Now, uh... As they're formulating that, that plan, you say, why in the world would you move a church to Holland? Well, they started by outlining the problem, and I'm going to give you the outline very quickly. Here's the church's outline. Number one, they said, we're moving because we're, we're, we're struggling because we're persecuted. So now they get to Holland, and, and in Holland, they're like, okay, let, let's, let's deal with the problems that we're facing here in Europe, number one, they could not own private property. So now they get to Holland, and now they're working the fields in Holland. For more than 10 years, the congregation lived in Holland. The record says that they worked between 12 and 15 hours a day working in the fields of the landowners, trying to carve out an existence for their families. You say, what terrible conditions. Yeah, but the small congregation from England in Holland, it grew to 500 people. It began to grow. Okay? So now they've been in Holland for 10 years, and they're like, okay, is this where we're going to stay permanently? And they began to look at the situation. 
And they said, well, here's our problem. Living in Holland, we can't own land. The people here won't give us, won't give us citizenship. They won't give us landowners' rights. And even though we've lived here in Holland now for 10 years, we, we can't vote. We are aliens. We have alien status. We're nothing more than basically just slaves to these people. We're working their land. We're working like crazy. We have no rights. And ultimately, they're never going to let us own our own land. Now, when you start talking like this, Americans are like, wow, we can't imagine living in a country where you can't own your own stuff. Do you know that most of the world lives in a a country where they can't own their own stuff? Eh, That's wild, isn't it? You can build a business in this new socialist world that's being talked about here in American politics. Listen, in socialism, you can build a multi-million dollar business and then ultimately you have to give it to the government. You don't own it. Does that sound like a great idea for anybody here? You know, work your whole life and then give everything to the government because now they claim that they own it because they gave you the roads to move your goods. No, we paid for those roads through our own taxes. They didn't give us anything. Anyway, just not going to get on that note, but they could not own land. Number two, living in Holland, they said our youth are falling away now in record numbers again. Ten years later, they're losing a whole other generation of believers they, they, they were concerned that their youth were departing from the faith of their parents in increasing numbers. Now, uh, we research this stuff continually here at Cornerstone. The latest numbers, uh, the latest study in the U.S. says that 64% of our 18 to 28-year-olds will not be followers of Christ like their parents. It's the latest numbers in America right now. You hear what I'm saying? 64%. Where's everybody that's under 18 in the room? Raise your hand real quick. Oh, raise it high. Don't be wimpy. Okay. So what it means is, you're going to be a follower of Christ. You're not, you're not, you are. You're not, you're not, you are. You're not, you're not, you are. You see what I'm saying? Now that's the situation. So they said, what well, we're losing our young people. In America right now, the latest number, 64% walk away from church. They're not coming back to their faith of their parents. Now, I just want to give you a sidebar right here, because at Cornerstone, we take studies like that very serious. They're real. Those studies are real, and we take those very seriously. And so we are constantly trying to reform our methods and address our changing culture at Cornerstone. When you hear us talking about, we're about to change curriculums, we're about to redo this, we're about to reorganize this, we need volunteers in the children's ministry or the youth or the worship or this or this or this, what's going on behind the scenes is not we're just changing things because we're bored. We're changing things because the world is changing and we do not intend to lose our children. We're very serious about that. I will be personally offended to lose my children for them to grow up as adults and not follow God. Okay? I take it very seriously as your pastor and our staff does and our deacons and elders do. We take it very seriously, the defection of our children from following Jesus Christ. That's not as well, so I guess it didn't work out for that family. No, we take that to heart. This is life. This is the whole game to us. Now, I I just want to say, I'm also happy to report at Cornerstone that we're producing results that are the inverse right now of the national average in our church. Is everybody comprehending what I'm saying? Right now, what we're producing out of our youth department is the inverse of the national average which means we're not losing two two for every one we keep. We may be losing one for every two we keep. 
We're doing the inverse of the national average right now. We're seeing our 18-year-olds graduate from high school and from the youth department stay with their faith. And you know why they're staying with their faith? Because it is truly their faith in Jesus Christ. They are growing disciples of Christ who have their own faith. They believe. They know what they believe. They know why they believe it. And they're being transformed. And they're excited about the prospects of following Christ as a young adult. And we think that's awesome. Point number three of the Pilgrim's Church business meeting is they said this. We see the opportunity for cross-cultural disciple-making in other places. We're here in Holland. It didn't work out that well. We're not making much disciples in Holland. But as we look beyond the borders of Holland, we do see that there are places in the world where disciples could be made if people were willing to take a risk and move beyond the boundaries of this English culture. Now, the congregation had an understanding that God wanted them to advance the gospel, that God wanted them to take risks to, to, to make disciples for Jesus Christ. And this group of adults in this 500-member congregation wanted to leave their children in a better situation and in a better position than uh, the parents were to, to serve Christ. Now, in 1600... The pagan world was the Americas. The yet barely discovered Americas. A few people have come. They tried a settlement at Jamestown. It fell apart. Some conquistadors and some explorers had made forays over here. Some Vikings had come across the north over here. But largely, it was still an unknown world in the Americas. So the church said, if we're going to make some disciples cross-culturally, let's go to the Americas. What's there? Let's look westward. Well, as they looked to the Americas, there was one destination in South America, Guiana, and there was one destination in North America, a colony that was trying to be built by uh, uh, England called Virginia. It was yet to be developed. It was still just wilderness, just an idea right now. But they had two possible destinations, South America and North America, Guiana or what they're calling the Virginia uh, settlement. They're going to try to settle in Virginia. And the church gathered and prayed, and after discussion and debate and prayer, the pilgrims reached a decision that reaching the unreached natives of North America would be the mission of their church. All in favor say aye. Aye. The motion passed. We are going to North America, ladies and gentlemen. You guys ready to pack again? We don't own any property, so don't worry about it. Just, you're going to walk away from your in-house, and we're going to, we're going to go give uh, some notice here shortly at all of our jobs. We're moving this congregation to North America. Now, here's the problem the church faced. It costs a lot of money to move across the Atlantic Ocean. How in the world are we going to, how in the world are we going to move our belongings and our families across the ocean and have supplies and some tools to build something in a complete wilderness wasteland called North America. Well, they did their research, and they discovered that there was a way to have the cost of the trip underwritten by a company, by a corporate sponsorship, if you would, by a scholarship, or corporate sponsorship. It's a good word to, to use. They called it a patent, but a corporate sponsorship. But in order to win the corporate sponsorship from the Virginia Company of England, you had to enter into a competitive bidding process. If you know what a competitive bidding process looks like in 1600 in England, 
with the Virginia company, then you know that these were notoriously corrupt. Bribes were going to be paid. Arms were going to be twisted. Influence was going to be used. Uh, winning, winning, Winning a corporate scholarship, sponsorship, to move a congregation across the ocean was going to be, there's like, no way we're going to win this, right? I mean, like as a church, there's no way. We're going to win the thousands and thousands of dollars of sponsorship that it's going to take to move us. And they said, well, let's pray about it and let's see. So they made the application and uh, they did a little follow-up work. And, and nearing the, the end, the, the church would dispatch ultimately two men, Robert Cushman and John Carver, to go back over to England and to meet with the Virginia company in a series of meetings to try to win the corporate sponsorship for this congregation of pilgrims. They had to convince the Virginia company that their church could not only handle the journey, but that they could stay when things got tough, that they were up to the challenge as a church, as a team of people, that they could survive the hardships they were going to face in establishing this colony, this settlement in Virginia. Near the final awarding, they're announced now they're going to award the sponsorship. We're just a few days out. And near their award date, the pilgrim church said, hey, let's follow up with a letter to the Virginia company and let's let them know one more time why they should choose us as a church to go to America and build this colony. So on December the 15th, 1617, Pastor John Robinson of the Pilgrim Church, Pastor John Robinson and, 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 and William Brewster, the teaching elder, sat down and wrote out a five-point Letter, a five-point argument, persuasive letter, to send to the Virginia company so that they could win the corporate sponsorship. Now, if you're an American, this is your legacy that I'm about to read to you. If you're a follower of Christ in North America today, I'm about to read you your legacy. Here is the five-point outline written by pastor and teaching elder Point number one, I'm going to read you their words in just a moment. Here's their first point. You should choose us because we trust God. Here are their words. We verily believe and trust the Lord is with us, unto whom and whose service we have, been, we have given ourselves in many trials. We believe that he will graciously prosper our endeavors according to the simplicity of our hearts therein. Let me summarize the first point that they made. They said, we trust in God. We trust in God and we know that God is directing our lives. And we are living by the words which we have memorized in Proverbs chapter 3 verse number 5. We are commanded to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He's going to make your paths straight. We believe that. We've memorized that. We live by that. So when we say to you, we trust God, choose us, they're not empty words. We actually mean it. We believe in God. Not any old God. We believe in a God who loves to bless His children. You see, we've read our Bibles. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that uh, comes to God, for whoever draws near to God, must believe that He exists. Do you believe that God exists? And that He rewards those who seek Him. Do you believe God rewards those who seek Him? 
Yeah, he blesses his people. So if you pick the pilgrims, God's going to bless this endeavor because God blesses his people. It's great logic, actually. If you want your little colony to be blessed, then pick a group of people that have the hand of God upon them. We've been through many trials. God's always provided. We've been advancing the kingdom of God in dangerous circumstances. We we know all about this kind of struggle. And God has always protected us and always prospered us. And you've come here on this Sunday morning in North America having this legacy in you. And I want to challenge you to continue to live with this same trust in God, knowing that there is a God and He wants to bless you. Here's their second point. We overcome difficulties. Here are their words. Choose us because we are well weaned from the delicate milk of our mother country. And we are inured. Uh, you don't even use that. Accustomed acquainted with, familiar with the difficulties of a strange and hard land, which yet in a great part we have by patience overcome. Now here's what they're saying. We overcome difficulties. Listen, we're not afraid of facing the impossible. We're not afraid of, uh, 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 of being against the odds. We're not afraid of, of being the underdog. We are overcomers. We are not a congregation of sheltered people who have never had any rough experiences in life. We have faced many difficulties, and we have chosen to not to live like other Europeans live. But instead, we've chosen to live as disciples of Jesus Christ, and we're willing to forsake everything to follow Christ. We have overcome the trials... Because we believe, according to 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Now, these are words to live by. These are words they lived by. Let me ask you a question this morning. Anybody here ever have any problems? Sure you have. Anybody come through those problems and now you're on the other side? Sure you have. And looking back, how did you overcome those problems? Because the Spirit of God is in you. And in those trials, he comforted you, and he encouraged you, and he sustained you, and he provided for you, and he cared for you. And now on the other side of those trials, you're living with great confidence. You and I are living with great confidence. Why? Because we've seen God deliver us. We've seen God care for us. Listen, some of the small trials that we go through right now are just confidence-building exercises. That's all they are. And, And it's not fun while you're doing it, but on the other side, you look back and say, wow, God sustained me through that. God cared for me through that. Look, I'm doing fine. God answers prayer. And it's teaching us to live with confidence because we are overcomers. This is our legacy as Christians. This is what Paul said. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Here's their third point. We work hard. Anybody here work hard? Boy, you'd like these people then because this is one of their arguments. Choose us because we work hard. Here's their words. The people are, the congregation they mean, for the body of them, industrious and frugal. And we think we may safely say as any company of people in the entire world. That's a great argument to make. You want to choose people that are hard workers? This congregation of believers, these are hard workers. They are industrious. They have a work ethic. They can do all things through Christ which strengthens them. They are frugal. They are not wasteful. They are careful with their resources. Christians believe in functional living. 
I want the American ears to perk up right here. Christians believe in functional living. We do not practice extravagant lifestyles. We do not practice wasteful lifestyles. We, we, are, we don't practice flashy pimp daddy kind of living. Bling bling is not our thing. And you say, why? Well, because that's not who God's called us to be. It's not a matter of style. You can have a little style. It's a matter of how you're using your resources. What they're saying is we've been taught to give liberally, generously, sacrificially. We work hard and we give generously. Uh, Listen, I I, want to just challenge you. Uh, 10% is not where God's people stop giving. That's where you ought to start giving. Start giving. Unsaved Jews gave 10% 4,000 years of the Old Testament. There is no command to tithe in the New Testament. It says give according as God leads you. Trust me, God's leading you to give more than 10. That's what an unsaved person gave to, to charity in the Old Testament. We've been so mistaught on this. These pilgrim people were not like, well, we're just going to tip God a little here. They're like giving their whole lives. They're like giving everything. They're like taking, taking it all and laying it out there for God and saying everything we own is yours. It's all yours. We are yours. And you say, well, why, why do we need to give in this way? Well, because ministry is hard work. Helping people find Christ is not easy work. That's hard work. Uh, leading people to find life. I mean, if you're leading a small group, you get this right now. Leading people to find life transformation is not easy work. It's hard work. It costs you time. It costs you energy. It costs you prayer. It costs you relationally. It costs you turmoil. It causes you, I mean, not turmoil in that, you know, it just, it's, it's not easy. It's just not easy. Listen, keeping our meeting place uh, in repair is hard work. I guarantee it's more than three or four of us can keep up with. Just maintaining a multi-million dollar plant is not an easy uh, prospect on us. Keeping all of our systems up and running and up to date, keeping our classrooms up to date, keeping our curriculum up to date, keeping our technology up to date. It's crazy how, how complicated all of this is. And it takes uh, tons of teamwork and giving and, and cooperation and participation. And basically right here is where I want to ask every member to share in the work of tending to the things of God. What a privilege for all of us to tend to the holy things. You know, in the Old Testament, there was only one little class of people who could deal with the holy things. That priesthood group of people. The New Testament's totally different. Every one of you can put your hands to the things of God and the ministry of God. So it's just helping out with the building. means helping out with the departmental ministries, preschool, elementary, youth department, greeting, security, all the things that have to happen. Technology, worship, be willing to serve because hard working is the legacy of God's people. Here's their fourth point. We believe in community. We believe in community. Here's what they said. We are knit together as a body in a most strict and sacred bond and covenant of the Lord. And of the violation whereof, I mean to break that covenant, we make great conscience I'm going to pause right there before I finish reading and say to you that in this generation of Americans, people do not make great conscience to break their church covenant. They do not make great conscience. We have lost this part of our legacy in America right here. Listen, being a part of a church family is a big deal. If you guys are okay, let's talk about that next year a little bit, okay? I'm thinking about rewriting the church covenant, opening a book. Let's start with line number one. 
and start signing back up. And let's decide who's going to make a covenant. I, make a, I pledge my life to your family if you pledge your life to my family. I'll help you with your kids. You help with my kids. We'll help each other through investing our lives into each other. I, I think we've got to get back to making a covenant. Let, let me read their words. The violation whereof we make great conscience by virtue whereof we do hold ourselves straightly tied to all care of each other's good and of the whole congregation. You know what they had learned? They had learned what Paul was teaching in Romans chapter 12. So the, so we being many are one body in Christ. We are knit together as a body. And we take our commitment to church community very seriously. And I just want to, I'm just going to keep Keep going with this. Bear with me. Because followers of Christ are not afraid to make commitments. We marry the people we live with. Listen, don't be scared to nod your head right here. We marry the people we make love to. We marry the people we love. We marry the people we want to spend our lives with. That's a Christian commitment. Thank you, Martin. God bless you. That's a Christian commitment. Listen, let me talk about a Christian commitment. We bring children into this world and we stay engaged in their lives until they're adults. We do not abandon our children. We've made a commitment to bring them into this world. Listen, that's a good 20-year commitment. Amen? At least 20-year commitment. Then you can be best friends later. Okay? But right now, you're something else called a parent. And we will not... Listen, let's make a Christian commitment. No matter how crazy our kids get, we will not abandon them. We're going to love them all the way. And you know what? They're going to turn out right. That's what I'm telling you right now. I'm already calling it. They're going to stay. If you make that commitment, they're going to stay with their faith. And they're going to stay with their family. And we're going to build some solid, strong Christian families, even in a culture which is declining. When you come to be a part of the membership of Cornerstone, you're entering into a covenant with other, for other wonderful Christian people who intend to work together as a team to advance the kingdom of God. If you're saying, why should I entertain being a part of Cornerstone? Because we have something to offer you. Real, genuine relationships. Real lives knit together. Here's point number five, and I'm out of time. We are not like other men. I'm going to use this word generically. We're not like other women. We're not like others. But two men were writing the letter, so, and they were chauvinistic probably, so we are not like other men. You're considering our church, here's their argument, we are not like other people. Something I came to realize when I was in my early 20s, as I watched how other people lived their lives and responded to the events of life, I was coming to understand I don't respond like these other people exactly. I'm driven by something different than these other people. I'm thinking and feeling about life a little differently than some of my peers. What's happening to me? In those days, I didn't even know how to articulate it, but now I can articulate it as being transformed by the Holy Spirit of God to be more like Christ. Still have a long way to go at 52. But I want you to know I'm being changed. I'm being transformed. These people made that very argument. They said, we are not like other men. Let me read their words. Lastly, it is not with us as with other men. 
you're looking at like different people to send to America and you're entertaining why this group or why that group and why this group and these guys look, look like a bunch of pirates and these guys look like a bunch of really rough men and these people look like this and we're over here in our silk leader hosen and buckles and black hats. And you're thinking we're a bunch of softies because we don't look like a bunch of oil field workers. Lastly, we're just not like other men whom small things can discourage or small discontentments will cause us to wish themselves at home again. We're just different. Let me say to you in closing this morning that for too long the spirit of adventure has been removed from the people of God. My version of Christianity is Indiana Jones meets the Bible. It always has been, it always will be as long as I'm your pastor. I'm going to be challenging you to take risks, to think outside the box, not to have your head down but your eyes up looking, always watching for people and relationships and where God is leading us. Because I understand the legacy that has brought us to this place. These people risked everything to advance the kingdom of God. And in our generation, I see people risking hardly anything to advance the cause of Christ. We want to get back to what our true legacy really is. They knew, they knew there were unreached people in this world. They knew there were people who had never one time heard a clear story of Jesus Christ and His saving grace. And that understanding did something to them. It affected them. And they were so committed to the mission of Christ that they left the comfort of European culture to make disciples in an unknown land. Do you understand what I'm saying? They left the theater. They left paved streets. They left water that was clean and safe. They left Bach and Beethoven and the art of Europe and the culture and refinement of Europe. And they said, we'll leave it all behind us to go to a wilderness to see if we can lead some natives to faith in Jesus Christ. But they don't stand alone in history. Their story is not an isolated story. This is what disciples of Jesus Christ have always been doing and are still doing. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them as rubbish in order that I might gain, pursue Jesus Christ. Let me ask you some closing questions this morning. What cause is so important to you that you would count all things loss to pursue it? What cause is so big to you that you would risk everything to pursue it? These Christians realized that they would never see Europe again in their lifetime when they got on that boat. I'll finish the story next week. They said, when we get on this boat, we will never see Europe again probably in our lifetimes. This is a total commitment. When we go to make disciples in North America, we're never going to see our ancestors. We're never going to step foot on Europe soil again. This is a total commitment. Commitment. I'll tell you next week 
ultimately what happened. They had to leave some people behind because they weren't strong enough for the trip and because of other circumstances. And when they said goodbye to their family, they said, we'll never see you again on this side of heaven. So we'll see you on the other side. Now, when I talk about taking risks for Jesus, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? We will never... Imagine hugging your children or your parents or your grandparents at an old wooden dock in England with tears flowing and saying, well, we won't see you again on this side. You talk about faith. That's real. But we'll see you at home on the other side. And you say, well, pastor, I'm so sad for these people don't be because they were not sad for themselves as a matter of fact when you read what they wrote and i'll read you some of it next week they considered this to be the opportunity of a lifetime aren't they mortified no they're thrilled beyond belief that they get to suffer and take some big risk for jesus christ now ladies and gentlemen 400 years later week by week and year by year I try to constantly present to you the understanding that you have before you ladies and gentlemen the opportunity of a lifetime to make disciples for Jesus Christ remember this those who are willing to take the risk for Christ these are the ones they call heroes in the kingdom of God. As you read through chapter 11 of Hebrews, and you say the heroes of the faith are, these are risk takers. These are risk takers. Those who are willing to take the risks are the ones who are called heroes in the kingdom of God. Now listen, I have four sentences. You ready? I could tell you another story about another church who was all in for God. A church who knew that God wanted them to make disciples. Their culture was in decline. And the Christian youth of their country were being lost at 64% and abandoning the faith of their parents. And the pagan world of their day was Asia. And so God opened a door and challenged the people of that church to step into Asia and start making disciples. And the people of that church said, what did we say? We said yes. And for 15 years, we've led well over 100,000 people and planted church after church after church after church after church after church, school, school, orphanage, 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 on the continent of Asia. And right now, God opened a door into Mexico last week into Nicaragua. I anticipate Costa Rica. I'm still praying for Cuba. Ecuador's lying just to our south. The doors are just there. And God's going to open them. And what are we going to say? We're going to say yes. You say, why are y'all that way? Well, we're not like other people. We get that. We get that. We get that a lot. 
This morning, I want to challenge you, if you're not a member of this church and you're discovering that you're not like other people also, then maybe you're like these people. Amen? Maybe you're like us. People who are all in for Jesus Christ. Now, what it's going to mean is we're going to have to, we're going to, have to give lavishly to pull off what God has for us. We're going to have to pray down some money. We're going to have to dedicate some hard work. We're going to have to everybody, everybody put their hand to the mission of Jesus Christ. But if we do, the ones who take risks go down as heroes in the kingdom of God. Let's put your name on that list. Amen. Listen, if you need to be a member of this church in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to slip out of your seat and just come join me here on the front. Many have been through starting point yet haven't formalized their membership. And, and I haven't given a call for membership in, in, in months. Maybe you need to join this morning. I pray that you will. Listen, maybe you and your family need to gather at the altar for a minute and just say, God, if we haven't told you lately, we're all in. We're all in. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, in a few minutes there will be workers at the back of the auditorium. You slip out, just take one of their hands and say, hey, would you pray with me? They know exactly exactly how to help you and bless your life okay let's bow for prayer father in these moments just work in our hearts god if we haven't told you lately we love you you've done so much for us god you've blessed our lives so richly god we just want to re-enlist this morning lord make fresh covenant today about where we stand with you God, I pray that you would add to the church today. God, if there's some here that don't know you as Savior, save them in the next few moments. God, for all of us, challenge us right now. Challenge us to be like those who left us a legacy. Lord, whatever America's become, she's still a great country. But God, we've forgotten a lot of this legacy. This is the true history of who we are as a people. God, thank you for reminding us of who we really are. We draw our identity from you this morning. The very truest things about us are the things you say about us. Father, I pray for the coming generation, Lord, of teenagers, that they would not be lost to the faith of their fathers and father I pray for the 20 year olds in this community there's some wonderful wonderful 20 and 30 year olds out there God would you touch their hearts for them to come back through these doors maybe they didn't come up in this church but they need to be reclaimed God there's a whole generation of them out there Lord help us to reclaim them Lord that's our prayer this morning that's our prayer ask you to stand to your feet if you need to make any other decision if we can help you there's people in the back who can help you whichever way you need to go you make that that move this morning